All right, guys, why don't you turn to Acts 19. Speaking of Ephesians. All right, so right above Acts 19.1, what does your Bible say? Paul in Ephesus. Paul in Ephesus, right. So this is the this is the time when the church is planted in Ephesus. So let's read. Um, how much do we want to read? So Judah, we'll start with you. We'll do just a verse at a time and verse per person, and let's read through the end of twenty. Yes. Anyone need a Bible? Other than Josh. All right, go for it. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then will you baptize? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. How many months? Three months. Excellent. All right, verse 9. When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrant. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How many years? Two years in Ephesus. Right. Okay. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirit came out of them. And some kept itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the... Jesus, whom Paul proclaimed. So the evil spirit went with them. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize that he is Jesus. And the man in whom the evil spirit left on him mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house and reached the end of the city. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, because great and great. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be How many pieces of silver? 50,000. 50, pieces of silver. So that's a, that's a very expensive uh, library that they're burning there. Last verse. So the word of the Lord Excellent. And then a riot in Ephesus. So Paul uh, gets accused, put on trial, and basically the judge says, you guys are being ridiculous. So Paul is being very orderly and law-abiding, and uh, so he dismisses the case. Um, All right, so what stands out to you from Paul's ministry in Ephesus? Yes, he did. Years, years of teaching. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, speaking of the teaching, in the next chapter, uh, he's going to be talking to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, that is, and he's going to tell them that night and day I did not cease teaching you guys. 
for a period of three years, actually. Yeah, so the point there is that there, um, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was a significant city. Um, if you know your, your global geography, it's, it's on the western side of Turkey, what's now Turkey. So it's on the Aegean Sea. Um, it's a good ways from you know, Jerusalem, Damascus, all those cities that we talked about at first where uh, we discovered, uh, we heard about the Apostle Paul. Um, and it was, it's a major city uh, in terms of the economy. It's a major city in terms of traveling. You would always go through Ephesus if you're, if you're traveling in that part of the Roman Empire. Um, so to plant a church there was a very strategic decision for Paul and the Apostles. And that, that becomes a very uh, significant church over the years. So um, <clears throat> the Apostle John, uh, when he writes the book of Revelation, as we will get to, uh, writes it from, a, um, uh, well, he has the Revelation when he's on the island of Patmos, but he, he himself is going to be um, based in the city of Ephesus for a good period of time. Anyway, it becomes a very significant place. And so it makes sense that one of the, uh, one of the important letters of the early church is written uh, to the Ephesians. So a uh, little recap. Do you need outline? Yeah. So recap parts of, the, parts of an epistle. Why don't you turn to Ephesians while I go over this so we can map it. That heat really works, doesn't it? Wow, it's intense. Um, All right, so we said that in a a typical epistle, you have a greeting. So, so so-and-so to so-and-so, grace and peace. Do you have that? Do you have a greeting in Ephesians? Yes, you do. Look at that. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then that common, um, the common greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace being a Greek greeting, charis, and then peace being a Jewish greeting, shalom. So Paul kind of combining both of those things. All right, so you've got a greeting and then you have a thanksgiving section very often for Paul in Ephesians. Uh, that is going to come later, uh, verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus uh, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease, cease to give thanks for you. Blah, blah, blah. So that's the Thanksgiving section. Uh, prayer. He's got a prayer um, at that point as well. Um, yeah, well, verse 16 Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's the prayer section. The body of the letter is kind of the main content of what he's going to say. The body of, of Ephesians, I mean, to some extent it starts in verse 3, but in another sense it starts after the prayer, so chapter 2. Um, but it's, hard to, it's actually hard to divide the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving prayer body. Those are all kind of morphed together in Paul's uh, letter here. And then we go to personal greetings, and this is where uh, Ephesians is a bit unexpected. So if Paul uh, had spent three years in Ephesus, which of course he did, then you would expect that he would have a lot of personal greetings because he would have known a lot of Christians in Ephesus, right? Uh, And yet when we get to the the final greetings in, in Ephesians, the, the final personal greetings, does, does he even mention somebody specifically at all by name? Only the man who sent it. Yeah, the sender of the letter, Tychicus. Um, but no personal greetings. Zero. Um, uh, so just as a comparison, turn to Romans 16. We've already done Romans. I know you remember everything, but still, let's go to Romans 16. Verse 
So how many names does he mention personally in Romans 16? Only kidding. It's a lot. Yeah, it's like 20 or 30 names, right? And he had never even been to Rome. Uh, so these are people he, he knew about because of other Christians that, uh, I mean, Prisca and Aquila, he, he knows from Corinth. Um, but a lot of these people he heard of through other Christians. Um, anyway, that shows you what it, what it's, it, that's the longest, in terms of the list of personal Greeks, that's the longest one in Paul's writings. But when you get to Ephesians, a city that he had actually lived in for two to three years, it's, it's very surprising. So that's why, um, do you guys remember reading about Ephesians as a circular letter? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, so maybe uh, the idea there is that maybe he wrote sort of a generic letter to, you know, you could, be, you could deliver this letter to a, any city that, uh, you know, if, if, a, if a representative of Paul is traveling to that city, you could deliver this letter to any city and, and it would be the words of Paul in some ways to, that, to the Christians in that city. So it's called Ephesians because all the early manuscripts have a big title across the top um, to the Ephesians. And so the assumption is that this was originally written to the Ephesians. And, and so actually that where it says in Ephesus to the saints who are in Ephesus, or what is the language exactly? It says you know, to the saints who are in Ephesus, verse 1. Um, so in Ephesus actually isn't in the earliest manuscripts. Anyway, so that's, that's a bit about the personal greetings thing. And then you get his conclusion, uh, which in this case is the last two verses of the epistle. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. So do you guys love our Lord with a love that's incorruptible, unable to be corrupted? It's a complicated question, isn't it? Answer is yes and no. So yes in sort of this absolute unchanging sense. If you're a Christian, you love the Lord. And if you love the Lord, then you love the Lord with a love that's incorruptible. It will never fade rust or be destroyed. But we all know that we need to grow in our love for the Lord. Um, so it's a, I have it and I need more of it at the same time. But it's, that's the closing. That's the conclusion of the letter. That wish for grace, the grace be with you thing, in all 13 of his epistles, no matter how angry he was at the person or the people in the letter, when he gets to the very, 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 very end, it's always grace be with you uh, in all 13 of his epistles. All right, so that's the part parts of an epistle. So authorship, we know it's Paul because it's the first word of the epistle is Paul. And the early church would have held to that without any, any question whatsoever. Um, there is this other idea in, in church scholarship, well, in the scholarship, I should say, whether it's in the church or not is debatable, but in scholarship, there's this idea that, well, maybe it wasn't Paul who wrote this. Maybe it was a guy who came in the second century, and he sort of pretended to be Paul, um, and he, he wrote this letter, that, and that's why, um, that's why it sounds like Paul sometimes, but the language is a little bit different than Paul at other times. So under authorship, Letter B, F.F. Bruce speaks to that issue. F.F. Bruce is a really great New Testament scholar. So he says, If the epistle to the Ephesians were not written directly by Paul, but by one of his disciples in the apostle's name, then its author was the greatest Paulinist of all time, a disciple who assimilated his master thought, master's thought more thoroughly than anyone else ever did. The author, if he was not Paul himself, has carried the apostle's thinking to its logical conclusion beyond the point where the apostle stopped and has placed the, the the cupping stone on the massive structure of Paul's teaching of such a second Paul early church Christian history has no knowledge. That's a good rebuttal to that, to that idea. So when did he write this? Uh, Caleb said it was written at the time of Colossians. Um, in other words, it was written during his house arrest in Rome. So the two-year house arrest at the end of the book of Acts so Paul, the last two, two or three verses of Acts refers to Paul staying there, preaching the kingdom of God um, uh, for, for two years. And Luke is with him at that time. And so Luke and Paul and others are ministering in, in, the, in Rome at that time, writing letters, receiving letters. Um, and so the letters written at that time are called the prison epistles. Uh, 
uh, fittingly. Um, so that's um, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians, First um, Timothy, I believe. No, that's not true. Philemon. Philemon, is, those are the four. So uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, those are the four. Um, and if you read those, uh, especially Colossians and Ephesians, if you ever happen to be in your Bible play and reading those back to back kind of quickly, you notice that those sound very similar. And so the reason that they, <clears throat> that we think they sound very similar is because they're written at a very close period of time. And then the other interesting, the other interesting thing about Ephesians is you can't actually make a strong case that Luke, so uh, remember we've talked about how Paul used secretaries. Have we talked about that? How Paul used secretaries to write his epistles? Okay, some nods. Yeah, so we, the fancy name for that is an amanuensis. Uh, so in the, ancient, in the ancient world, writing letters was very complicated. Even having the, um, the materials to do it, the right parchments, the pen, the ink, all that stuff. Um, not a pen, but, you know. Um, having the right materials to write a letter was very complicated. Uh, not as simple as you just beat it on your computer, hit print or send or whatever, and it's done. Um, but it, it often required a professional or someone who was just trained and skilled. And so with Ephesians, you can make a pretty strong case that the, the amanuensis was Luke as he wrote it. I think that's actually true. And so the reason that's relevant is some of the teaching um, on the Holy Spirit that you find in Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, in the Timothys um, overlaps really well with the teaching on the Spirit in the book of Acts. So we'll see that actually in, in Ephesians a bit. Um, all right, so the audience, we said Ephesus. Lots of stuff here on the circular letter stuff we've already covered. So we dated it um, to his two years of house arrest in Acts 28. So uh, 60 to 62 or so. And he's killed in about 65 uh, under Nero. So this is not long before his death. And he would have been converted... For extra credit, maybe even a gold star. What year? Approximately. I'll give you a hint. Jesus was raised from the dead in 33. That year. All right. Caleb thinks that year. Anyone else want to agree or disagree with Caleb? 34. 34, his brother comes in. Uh, yeah, I think it was actually later that year, um, 33 when he was converted. Um, so the, those events in the first, uh, the first chapters of Acts are pretty compressed in time. So, so if uh, Pentecost was in May of that year, um, the stoning of Stephen doesn't happen much later. Um, so the point of that is, so if he's converted in 33 and he's writing this letter in 63-ish, obviously that's about 33 years later. So he's, sorry, 30 years later. So he's been in ministry a long time. He's studied a lot. He's thought a lot. He's been challenged a lot. He's been in um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pretty contentious conversations trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ. So his theology is very advanced by this point. Um, so in other words, it's a, as I say here, it's, it's a mature epistle. So, I mean, all of his epistles are mature epistles since they're all the Word of God and they're all um, the very definition of sound doctrine. Um, but in some ways, Ephesians is even more mature. So you get, you get some topics that are hit in Ephesians that aren't hit in earlier epistles. Um, so his first epistle we said was Galatians. Or maybe we didn't say that. His first epistle was Galatians. Um, and so if you compared Galatians and Ephesians, you would realize that you know, it's, it's the same consistent doctrine, and at the same time, there's, there's some ideas that are more advanced in um, in Ephesians. So, uh, for instance, Christ is the head of the church. The, uh, he's the head over all things. That idea, uh, sort of the heavenly side of the church, of Christianity, that gets a lot of development in Ephesians, and it gets no development in Galatians. So just as an example. All right, so as for an outline, uh, several epistles have this... Um, has it had this basic this structure of like deep content, deep theology, and then practice, how to live the Christian life. 
So if you're reading Romans, you have 11 chapters of basically what is the gospel, Romans 1 through 11. And then you get to chapter 12, and you get this word, therefore. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So in other words, in light of everything I've just, I've just taught you on the mercy of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. And then chapters 12 through 15 of Romans are the practice of the Christian life. In Colossians, you get that same idea. So Colossians 1 and 2, um, and this is, I mean, he'll always have practice in his doctrine and doctrine in his practice. So you can't draw hard lines, but basically, you know, Colossians 1 and 2 is a lot of doctrine, the elevated glory of Christ. Um, and then at chapter 3, verse 1, that's when he says, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Is that one of ours? One of you guys? One of us? You couldn't tell? You said no? No. Well, then we don't care about them. Um, Yeah, so then Colossians uh, 3 and just four chapters, right? 3 through 4. 3 and 4 is more the practice of the Christian life. So not every epistle has that that type of simple two-step process, but Ephesians does. So the the outline I'm going to use is thinking of chapters 1 through 3 as your calling, your Christian calling. And then chapters 4 through 6 is walking in light of your calling. Or more detail here, uh, I'm on page 53 of my outline. So you got the greeting in, in the first two verses, and then... Verses, so in 1 3 through 3 22 through the end of chapter 3, you have remember your calling. And so he just, he just marches us through the story of our salvation in these really exalted, glorious ways. So remember your calling. And then when you get to 4 1, you get a therefore. And as with all therefores, you need to ask what that therefore is there for. So I therefore a prisoner uh, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So all this stuff on your calling in chapters 1 through 3, and then in 4 through 6, it's walking worthy of your calling, how to live in light of your calling. Make sense? All right. Um, Yeah, so... So that's, that's the basic two-step thing. Um, one guy cleverly cleverly thought of Ephesians as this idea of sit, walk, stand, which is, it's kind of cool. Um, so sit is from ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. You're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Walk is the verse I just read. Uh, walking worthy of your calling. And then stand, any guesses? Stand firm, therefore, in the armor of God, the spiritual armor of God. So in some ways, the first part of the book is about this idea that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. Not that you will be, but that you are right now. And then what you're supposed to do, and then standing against uh, the devil in this arrows. All right, so now we go back to key passages and ideas in Ephesians. So who was the last to read in our Acts reading? Josh. So Logan, you can start, and we'll go back to you guys, and then back up here. So... uh, we're going to read 1, 3 through 14, hugely important text because it covers this idea that you you're chosen before the foundation of the world. In other words... It's a doctrine of election. 
so there's a few. There's not a ton of places um, that have such a such a, a large passage on this topic, uh, but this is one of the key ones. Um, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Romans 9 is another huge place when it comes to this, this notion of eternal election. Um, when did God choose you? Um, but Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is probably the, the best place to go if you're, if you're trying to study this doctrine and trying to maybe answer questions um, about this with somebody that you're talking to. So the other, so election means, uh, just what I say here, you're chosen before, you're elect before you were, you were born. Before you did anything, before you responded in faith, before you did anything good or bad or, or any, even existed at all, God chose you and said, I want you to be mine. Um, the alternative to that is that, there, that you were chosen you were chosen because you believed that that God, you weren't really chosen ahead of time. God simply saw that you, you're going to be one of those people who hears the gospel and actually chooses him, and so that he sort of chooses you because of that. So he knows that you're going to choose him. And, and so this would be the Arminian view, sort of. They wouldn't argue it this way, but essentially that's what they, that's what they do. Um, whereas the Reformed understanding is actually you believe because you were chosen. And we'll actually see that in Ephesians 2. But Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, um, this, is, this is an election passage like I said. All right, so Logan and then McLaughlin's then up front. So, uh, so yeah, so just start at 1, 3 and then we'll go to verse 14. Just one verse, yeah. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before him. In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself according to Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which. No, you're right with which he has blessed us. Uh, we're good. Right? To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. I define for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Great. So very, uh, it's a very packed passage. We won't, we won't um, answer all the questions connected to it, go into all the theology of it. Lots of big words there. Words like predestined gets used a couple times. Um, but let's, let's uh, note a few things about it. So it starts in 3 uh, with this idea of being blessed. So we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that idea of being in Christ, all the things we have, we have because we are in Christ. And so that uh, he, uh, uh, through his obedience, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, to the right hand of God, he the reward for his his perfect obedience uh, and submission to the will of God is that he received a people, and we are that people, and so faith in him 
gives us uh, his righteousness, gives us uh, all that he earned, we receive uh, because we are in him through faith. Um, so you right now have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So whatever your life might look like or not look like, um, that, is, that is one of the things you just have to know. This is true. You have every spiritual blessing. Uh, it's, it's yours and your treasure house in heaven. Even as he chose us, and now he's going um, to kind of walk through from eternity past to eternity future, all that we've received because we're in Christ. So he starts in eternity past. We're chosen. Chosen before the foundation of the world. So not just before you were born, but before there, there was a world at all. Before Adam and Eve, he chose you. Out of all the, out of all the billions on earth, he chose you before the foundation of the world. But it's helpful that he chose you f- for something. He didn't just uh, uh, pull you out of a people, but he actually chose you for a very specific destiny, for a, a specific purpose, and that is that you would be holy and blameless before him. So your, your, um, your election has to do with where, where you're headed, not just where you are now, but actually where you're headed. Where you're headed is that you will be holy and blameless before the Lord. And there's a, there's a sentence break here right before in love. Actually, in Paul's original sentence, there is no sentence break. It's, it's a long, uh, I, not meandering, it's just a, a long, complicated sentence. He finishes a thought, and then that thought inspires a thought. And then that thought inspires a thought, and he just keeps going with this. Uh, so some, some argue that actually all of 1 3, 4, through 14 is a single sentence in the Greek. You could break it up maybe two or three sentences, but it's... These are long sentences. Anyway, you're chosen before the foundation of the world. And then in love, he sort of recycles. And now we see the motivation. Why did God choose you? Um, And the reason he did is because of his love. Not because of our deserving it, but because of his love. In love, he predestined us. Uh, And predestined is, you know, destined before. So he's destining you for a very specific thing bef- before it happens. He's setting you aside for a specific destiny. And in this case, in love, he predestined us for adoption, that you would become his child. Sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So this will, um, he's going to go on in verse 11. Uh, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So this will you know, God's desire, God's plan, uh, it encompasses all things. Not just some things, not just Christians, but it encompasses all things. Um, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so in, as, a, as a part of that comprehensive will that he is, uh, uh, by which he's ordaining and controlling all things, he has set you aside and said, I want you to be mine. I want you to be my child. So, you know, God's will for you is a personal thing. You know, he, he chose you, but it's also this comprehensive universal thing. He's controlling all things. Um, and that is to the praise of his glorious grace. Why would he go there? Why would he say it's, this is all to the praise of his glorious grace? It's kind of obvious, but it's helpful just to remind yourself. Why would he go there? What do you guys think? Why does his grace get the glory and the praise? Because we glorify him. Because we're chosen. That is true. But in some ways, why does that glorify his grace in particular? By grace you have been saved by him. Right. I mean, what did what did you contribute? In verses three, four, five, and six, what did you contribute? Absolutely nothing, right? You were you were you were passive in that in that picture. You were receiving this amazing gift. You didn't do anything to deserve it. And at this point, even your faith hasn't even been mentioned. Uh, so it's, so it's it's to the praise of His glory is grace because His grace is the determining factor for what you receive or don't receive. His grace is the determining factor. 
So that's the eternal past. So we are set apart by God before the foundation of the world for this amazing thing. And then when we get to verse 7, and now there's a little bit more of how this is actually going to unfold. So in Christ, in Him, we have redemption through His blood. So He's going to, uh, as, as we know, God the, the, the Son is going to have to come in the flesh as, God, as uh, the Son of Mary in Jesus in order to be able to shed His blood. Because obviously God the Son, exalted and eternal, could not shed blood. He had no blood to shed. But once He inhabited the body of Jesus, once He came, became incarnate, well, then He could shed His blood. And so in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. And that means, redemption means, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So once again, grace gets magnified. Which he lavished upon us, this grace, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So his will, his purpose, his plan, all these, uh, all these words about God's uh, plan is the, is the plan that's unfolding. Um, so making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So that's, a, that's an idea that gets picked up or that Colossians has in a similar way. Uh, all things being united in Christ. So this, this, uh, this massive plan which involved your being chosen in eternity past, which involved Christ's crucifixion, ultimately has an end in view, which is where Christ is the, is the consuming um, glory of all things. And then he kind of cycles back and sort of starts over again. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Um, it's, so inheritance uh, tends to mean future, right? Something's going to happen in the future, and then I'm going to receive an inheritance. But actually, that inheritance is because we were predestined according to the purpose of His will, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I didn't read that right. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So it's... uh, this, this just huge unfolding plan of salvation is going to glorify His grace. His grace is going to receive praise. And He's going to be, uh, His glory will be praised because He is going to be seen as the, as, the, as the wonderful designer of all that's happening. And then you get to verse 13, and now, okay, now we actually do something. So in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, so the gospel came to you orally, um, when you heard it, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the, Holy, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, that future inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, eternity past, chosen, and then we step into 1st century A.D., where Christ uh, is crucified and accomplishes our redemption, and then we fast forward to the, for, to the time when we actually believed. We heard the gospel, we believed, and we're being preserved, kept, sealed for this future day when we receive the fullness of our inheritance. So eternity past all the way to eternity future. And that's, that's a glorious, gracious plan, and so God receives all the praise for that. Any questions on that? Any thoughts? It's uh, one thing about Ephesians is it, it does it does bring you into some pretty lofty ideas, some pretty kind of head spinning kind of kind of ideas. So it's hard to get your mind around it. Um, it's one of the books where you, you you just read it and you say, "Okay, I believe it. It's true." Um, but it's good, but it takes the rest of our lives to kind of uh, for, the, for kind of the truth and the power of it to really impact who we are uh, and how we think. Um, but this, you know, this tells you that just like you are not not an accident, you physically are not an accident. So you, in your conversion and your salvation, are not an accident. This is God's plan from eternity past. 
Let's skip ahead to chapter 2, verse uh, uh, 1 through 10. So this is another recounting of your salvation. So like we said, chapters 1 through 3, it's your calling. And so he's going to unpack different facets of our calling. So in 1 through 14, we got the facet of the kind of eternity past part of our calling. And now in 2, 1 through 10, it's the calling has to do with uh, going from death to life. And there's some huge, hugely important ideas here, um, Well, which we'll see. All right, so I'm going to read 2, 1 through 10. So, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, in the, in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's your story as, uh, as a Christian that is your story of conversion. So whatever the details were of how old you were, uh, what someone said, or um, you know whether it was church or at home or whatever, this is what happened to you when you became a Christian. So this gives us a not a before. Um, it doesn't give us the uh, kind of the eternity future aspect of our. Uh, well, it does actually uh, to an extent in, in verse seven. Let's think about this. So before we were a Christian, what was true of us from the from these verses? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. And and this is one of the reasons that uh, we would say salvation is all by grace, because dead people don't need to be helped. Helping a dead person accomplishes nothing. You have to bring them to life before they can do anything, right? So we were dead in the trespasses and sins, just like just like God promised in the garden uh, to Adam uh, on the on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So spiritual death is the consequence for sin, and so we start from position of death. What else was true of us before we were uh, a Christian? Sons of disobedience. It's a bad look. Sons of disobedience. So what's, what is your defining characteristic before you were a Christian? You were disobedient. Yeah, what else is true? By nature, we're children of wrath. Yeah. Any thoughts on what, what that means? Uh, I mean, a couple. Not really. It's definitely a strong statement. Calling us like children of wrath. That we were just following Satan much and just having no love or ability really to not sin, I guess. Yep. And and then the wrath part is that's what we're destined for. So we're on a path and this path only goes in one direction and you can't get off of this path unless God himself takes you off of this path and this path is headed toward wrath. Eternal, fiery, painful judgment. Uh, that's that's the wrath that awaits us without God's work in our life. And that's what we were by nature. So um, you, didn't, you didn't have to um, learn how to be that. You just were by nature. You naturally did all the things you needed to do to be a child of wrath. And you were already from birth, from conception really, a child of wrath. Uh, so without without having to go to school to learn how to do it. Um, 
Yeah, so what else what else is true of us before we're saved in these verses? Yeah. Yep. We were no better. Yep. Maybe we were no worse, but we are also no better. Yeah, so and there and there's more here, right? Um he's you know, our passions, our desires were all just like the rest of mankind. We were um and if you um if you were pretty young when you got saved, well what did it, what you know how exactly did your passions and desires look like the rest of the world you know filled with murder and adultery and whatever um, I mean in some ways you want to think about well, yeah but what would I have become if I if I didn't get saved it's always helpful to think about that if you got saved as a, as a young person uh, what would I have become if I never got saved you know just take your ten, your sinful tendencies and and kind of expand on, on them without you know the work of God and, and conviction from the Holy Spirit to shape you and guide you. That's what you would become. Um, so I got saved at 18, so I, I, I know what I became as a child of wrath and those lusts and passions or whatever. Um, for you guys, it's a little more theoretical, perhaps. But you do want to think about that. Just try to find some way to process, you know, what kind of person would I be as a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old if I didn't have Christ? It wouldn't be pretty. It really wouldn't. You're, you're nice people. Um, but if you take Christ out of your lives, you guys get a lot less nice. And, and the older you get, the worse you get. That's just the way it is. So that's before, before you get saved. And there you are, dead in your trespasses. Um, and and there's, a, there's sort of a mixed metaphor here, right? Because you're, you're dead in your trespasses, and yet you're doing all of these terrible things, right? Your passions, your... Uh, your desires are terrible, um, and yet you're dead at the same time. But then verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. So the first step in the right direction that happened to you was God made you alive. Regeneration. He brought you from death to life. So His, uh, he had to make that first move or else you would never repent and believe. Um, so if faith hasn't yet been introduced at this point, um, but he makes us alive um, through faith. We're raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So this is another, that's another one of those lofty ideas. So you sitting here at these tables, listening to me, or maybe not listening to me, but sitting at these tables are right now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Uh, so there is no more vivid picture of royalty than you guys sitting at these tables. There's no earthly uh, picture of royalty that's more royal than you guys, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Um, it's, very, it's a very powerful idea. So that's, um, that's your destiny, because you're, you're destined to, to rule and reign with Christ. We are destined to rule and reign with Christ. But it's also where we are right now, which is very powerful. Um, and then you get to our faith. So our faith does have a place. So verse 8 and 9, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So it is the gift of God could be just the grace you receive, uh, but it could also be the faith itself. Both are true. The faith you have is a gift, the grace you receive is a gift. Uh, and so all of that makes it so that it's not a result of works that you're saved. And then verse 10 Important verse because getting you saved isn't the end of the story. That's not the end of God's purpose for your life. Getting you saved is, is, a, is a means to an end. Um, so you're here now. Um, you're in this, this fallen world now, living a Christian life now, and God has work for you to do. And so in verse 10, you get that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So even the works we do, he prepares beforehand. So we are his workmanship, and the works we do are actually his workmanship. Um, so he prepares those works, and then we walk in them. And then, amazingly, he rewards us for those works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the whole thing, obviously, just like chapter 1, 3 through 14, is to the praise of the, his glorious grace, right? This, that's, 
glorious grace in action. Taking dead people, bringing them to life, and then putting them on a path to good works, and then rewarding them for those good works. That's, that's grace. So any questions, any thoughts? So just as I, sh- as I talk about those things, which of, the, which of those feels the hardest to really get? So in 2, 1 through 10. A lot of that is, is kind of uh, lofty or abstract, but which of those feels to you like, oh, that, that, that's, really, that's really hard to get? Hmm. Someone else? (laughs) Sometimes five seconds can feel like a long time, can it? sin is interesting all of our works that were prepared before us yep I guess like what we're trying to get at with like 2-6 and like seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus I still don't exactly kind of get that idea of like right now we'll see with him Yeah, I mean, it is tied to, you know, Christ is the king reigning over all things, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So he's the king, seated on his throne in some way. Um, and it's in the, the, the real um, unique contribution by Paul is this idea of being in Christ. We are in Christ. So wherever Christ is, we are in him. And he is ruling and reigning over all things right now. Um, and you, and we 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 do try to imagine him on that throne, but it's utterly beyond imagination. So the glory of it, uh, the power of it, um, is beyond imagination. The royalty of it is beyond imagination. But there we are. We are in him, and so we are. So we're seated with him. Uh, yes. Yeah, because uh, because well, right now it doesn't feel like we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, right? But it, yet it's true now, and then in the not in the not yet or the the future, uh, we we see more vividly, more more literally how we're going to reign over the creation. We'll be we'll be helping Christ rule over the creation, and that was that was the intent the whole time in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve were created not to just live in the creation, but they were created to have dominion, to rule over the creation, you know, the first king and queen. Um, and they were supposed to produce a people of kings and queens, but sin entered that and ruined it all. Um, but what, what salvation does, the plan of redemption does, is it restores that plan. Uh, it brings to fruition that original plan of us ruling and reigning over all the creation. Um, all right, it's 10.05. Well, so we know, we know about the therefore, right? So we're reading amazing things. We get to the therefore, walk worthy of this calling. So you, you've, you've been given this uh, incredible destiny. So now walk worthy of it. And so then turn to 417. This is, this is the walking part. So he's told us to walk worthy of the calling. And now he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Uh, So you are called to walk a different way. So don't walk as the Gentiles, but walk a different way. And Gentiles at that point means unbelievers. So he's not thinking in terms of 
you know, Paul himself is a Jew. He's ministering to Ephesians who are Gentiles. He's thinking in terms of unbeliever. It's another term he uses for unbeliever. Um, so what you get in, in the rest of chapter 4 is this idea of putting off and putting on. You put off evil behavior. You put on good behavior. So if I tell you, whatever you do in the next five seconds, do not think about the color red. Don't do it. Don't think about the color red. Don't, I see you doing it. Don't do it. Don't think about the color red. It's very hard to do that, isn't it? To not think about something you're not supposed to think about. And so that's the putting off. Don't do it. But if I tell you, if I know you're not supposed to think about the color red, and I tell you, think about the color green. You can think about the color green, and it's actually, I mean, if, if, I, if I say, and don't think about the color red, you might still be tempted to kind of switch back and forth between red and green, um, you know, setting aside colorblindness and all that for a second. But you might be tempted to go back to the color red, but if you really focus on thinking about green, you usually can do that. And so that's, that's one of those, uh, the reality of the human person is you can only think about one thing at a time. So if you find yourself not, uh, not thinking about, or if, if you find yourself thinking about what you shouldn't be thinking about, you, you will have almost no success if you say, I shouldn't think about that. I need to stop thinking about it. I need to stop thinking about it. And just turn and, th- and have something else you can think about. So, that, so putting off, putting on, that's, that's what we're talking about here. You put off, so verse... 22, he says, put off your old self, this uh, sinful, dead self you used to live in. Put off your old self, and then in verse 24, and put on the new self. So you put off something, you put on something. So what that looks like in action, uh, when you get to verse 25, he has these, he has several put off, put on kind of um, couplets or pairs. We'll say pairs. Uh, put off, put on pairs. So verse 25 Put away falsehood. So you don't speak lies. Don't speak falsehood. Don't don't dwell in dishonesty. Uh, don't say things that aren't true. So therefore, having put away falsehood, well, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So it's not just stopping something. It's stopping something and doing something. So don't just fixate on not telling lies, but actively, proactively speak truth. Speak truth to your friends, to your family, to all people. And then 26. Um, Well, 26 doesn't work as well, does it? So just don't be angry. Yeah, don't be angry. So when you get to 28, we get another put off, put on. So now it's stealing. Stealing is the issue. So let the thief no longer steal. So that's the thing we need to put off don't take someone else's property. Uh, the Bible has a has a, uh, a pretty pretty thorough appreciation for private property. There is such a thing as private property, and you you need to uh, not presume on someone else's property. Um, you need to respect their ownership of that property. So let the thief no longer steal. Well, what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to labor, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it's a, it's a powerful reversal, isn't it? So, you, so at first, I just I basically see all of your stuff and I basically think, that's mine. What, you have, what I have is mine and what you have is mine, and I can take it whenever I want. Um, so there's a, there's a selfishness, there's a, there's a sinful um, sense of entitlement with that. And what Paul is saying is, not to be like that, but be the very opposite, which means I'm going to work with my own hands. I'm going to do hard work required to earn money. And when I get money, I'm going to be generous with that money. I'm actually going to give it, to, give it back to you guys um, out of the overflow of what I make. And then one more, and uh, we'll go on to something else. Then tw- verse 29, uh, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So that could be any uh, curse words, bad jokes, um, just negative critical speech. There's a lot of ways where you can have corrupting talk. 
that it just hurts the people that you're around. You're, 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 you're hurting them emotionally, psychologically. Uh, you're bringing them down spiritually. It just corrupts other people. So let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So the very opposite. So instead of kind of tearing down with my words, I'm going to use my words to build people up. The total opposite. So that is, if, if, there's, a, if there's a sin you're trying to overcome in your life, it's helpful to think this way. So you don't just want to think about the sin you're trying to stop, but you also want to think about what is sort of its opposite or its pair that I can start and accent and focus on. Um, you know, so like laziness is, would be one of those things. If, if laziness is an issue for you and, and you're convicted about it, you know it's a sin that, that hurts you, that affects your schoolwork, your relationships, whatever, uh, your, your family. Well, diligence is the thing you're trying to put on, right? So you're trying to put off laziness and put on diligence. So maybe you start setting an alarm clock because that's part of putting on diligence. And there's you know, a thousand ways to do it, but thinking that way um, will tend to give you more victory over sin than just than fixing on what you're supposed to stop doing. All right, two minutes left. The last thing we will talk about is, well, just because it's, it, is, it is such an emphasis in Ephesians, turn to 5.18. So the Holy Spirit in Ephesians is a, is a, is a real dominant theme. Uh, there are lots of, lots of verses that speak to the, the Spirit's work. And so as he's, um, as he's kind of building his, his epistle, uh, describing all of these powerful things about the Spirit, we get to 518, and, do, and this is actually another put off and put on. So do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So... Um, pray for, cry out for, um, be willing to be filled with the Spirit. Um, and that's, a, that's an imperative, it's a command, it's a, it's a plural command you know, for, all, for all the people he's writing to. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a present imperative, so it's meant to be sort of, um, you don't just do it once and then forget about it. But there's this idea that we, we pursue being filled with the Spirit. Uh, so in the same way that, you know, in, just to use the metaphor he uses, in the same way that an alcoholic would pursue wine to get drunk in an ongoing way, as Christians we are to pursue the Holy Spirit uh, to be filled. So then he, then he explains um, in some ways what, what the effects will be in your life if you are filled with the Spirit. Uh, you will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So singing corporate worship, that's part of, uh, that's part of the overflow of being filled with the Spirit. Psalms is, you know, the book of Psalms. Hymns are Christian songs. Spiritual songs are, are fuzzier. Maybe they're spontaneous songs that you sing to the Lord. You sing prayers to Him or whatever. Um, but worship. Uh, so singing and making melody to, to the Lord with your heart. So this is an overflow of your heart. You know, you're, it's out loud because you're singing, but it's also your heart expressing itself. And then there's, a, there's an overflow of thanksgiving. So giving thanks always and for everything. So even at your ages, you know that giving thanks always and for everything is not an automatic thing. It's a very challenging thing. And so being filled with the Spirit leads to that kind of overflowing thanksgiving. And sometimes people would say that the reverse is true too, that, that um, you know, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and giving thanks always and for everything, that can lead sometimes to being filled with the Spirit. So you, you give thanks always for everything to God the Father uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to, to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that has to do with you will, you will naturally not naturally, supernaturally, you will supernaturally submit yourselves to all the relevant authorities in your life. And we, and the authorities in our life change throughout our life. When you're young, your parents are an authority. When you're older, they're not an authority. Uh, your employer is an authority, perhaps. If you get married, your husband is, or is an authority, or you're a husband with authority. Um, 
But being filled with the Spirit helps us, it enables us, it empowers us to be submitted rightly to those authorities. That is the book of Ephesians, or at least that's some of the book of Ephesians. So thank you guys. So next time is something else, which is amazing.